I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... That's the real difference. It's like, you know, in the East, East Coast mentality is a little more conservative, I think. Maybe we don't spend as much. We don't. We certainly don't puff up as much as the guys on the West Coast. And I think it's, um, it's sort of in, in the regional DNA. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Today's conversation is with our old friend, Tian Wang. Tian is the CEO of Opus 8. You might not have heard of him, but guess what? They put together startups and companies and investors. They have 3,000 high net worth individuals that get, they get together. They put together presentations for 800 companies over the years. They have folks from 25 nations, companies, and investors. This is the epicenter of gathering capital for startups in the Washington, D.C. area, in my personal opinion. We talk about the VC environment. Yeah, we're strong here with cybersecurity and quantum computing and hospitality. But are we as sexy as the Valley? No, and he can tell you why. And lastly, what does it mean to be a venture capitalist? These days, you're either micro or macro, tiny fund or big one. And Tien tells you why. Here's our conversation. Tien, great to see you. Thank you so much, Mark. Great to see you, too. So, Tien, uh, for those who have not heard his name before, and that may be only two or three of you, is a legend in the Washington, Maryland, Virginia uh, uh, arena for entrepreneurship, fundraising, et cetera. In fact, I met you, well, a gazillion years ago in startups and all that stuff. And I guess the first question that I would ask and anybody would ask is, do you think Washington continues to maintain some vitality as a home for startups and fundraising? Absolutely, 100%. I think we're a top five or six market in the country. And, you know, uh, the vitality is there. Um, capital's coming back in, and Amazon being here is going to sprout a lot of innovation, a lot of money, and a lot of it's going to attract other uh, tech companies to come here. And I think we're we're doing well. The government's doing great. You know, the the contractor industry is doing just fine, and cybersecurity is booming here, and healthcare. So, I think we're here. You know, the DC market's pretty pretty solid for startups for quite a while. Well said. Now, <laughs> wh- now the challenge is, why do you think? at least it's my impression, that the world doesn't know that as much as we wish they did. My theory on that is that the D.C. people are much more, uh, we don't market ourselves the way West Coast people do. You know, like you don't see our successful entrepreneurs driving around in McLarens and Ferraris, right? Correct. They're driving like, you know, Mercedes and Cadillacs. Or a Buick. Or a Buick. And, you know, that's the real difference. It's like, you know, and the East Coast mentality is a little more conservative, I think. Yep. Maybe we don't spend as much. We don't, we certainly don't, puff up as much as the guys on the West Coast. And, yeah. And I think it's um, it's sort of in, in the regional DNA. So, you know, a lot of our successes are not touted the way uh, if we were on the West Coast, believe me, they would, you know, we would be 10x exactly. what we are today. Yeah, as far as awareness. Awareness, yeah. I have another theory, which is some of, the th- some of our strengths, as you know, cyber, quantum computing, t- hospitality to a major extent. Uh, but a lot of GovCon and uh, and DoD and stuff like that, it's just not sexy compared right. to most They're people. They're not covering. sexy. They're more low key. Yeah. The entrepreneurs in those industries are definitely low key, and uh, yeah, so they're not as high flying. We don't have a lot of consumer type stuff. Right. You know, entertainment oriented, media oriented plays like you do in New York and California. So yeah. maybe that's part of it as well. Yeah. Good but, observation. But it does seem like, and you're square in the middle of this as a as a as a player, as a source of energy, as an organizer. 
we are, we are, I think we're doing really well, even post COVID in having contests and competitions and entrepreneurial uh, uh, events. You, you and your colleagues run a lot. Walk us through some of the events that Opus 8 or other groups that you're part of uh, have and, and put on here in the DC area. Yeah, no, absolutely. We've been doing Connectpreneur. This is our 11th year. So we have done, years. we've done 71 events. Seems like only yesterday. I know. You were part of the first few, yeah. remember? And yeah. I know you've been involved a lot with us, so thank you for that, Mark. My um, pleasure. But yeah, we've done. We've had over 800 presenting companies in the wow. last 10 years. Uh, we have over 3,000 investors in our community. We've had over 25,000 people attend. And uh, we now run the COVID hit, so we had to go from eight, eight in-person events a year to monthly virtual events. And now our monthly virtual events are the largest investor pitch events in the world. Wow. Yeah. So we have five to 600 people on every call and it's a call. It's not a webinar. So every person can see everybody else. Wow. And they can direct message with everyone else. I bet there's some so. crazy uh, <laughs> private. There's a lot of networking going on, I'll a bet. lot of deal making. No, it's fantastic. I mean, this is what Connectpreneur was created right. for is to put entrepreneurs in touch with investors in touch with, you know, other other uh, high quality innovators and creators and obviously professional service providers too. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's we're doing the best we can with the uh, with the online, and it's it's worked out pretty well so far. How do you get deal flow of companies that you vet and then allow to present? What, what what's a typical process? Yeah, so people usually hear about us. So it's either through our ambassadors, we have a couple dozen ambassadors, or it's through word of mouth from other presenters. We have eight hundred presenting companies. We have a few thousand investors. So a lot of word is out there about Connectpreneur. So being virtual now, we can have investors as well as uh, presenters from around the world. Yeah. So we've had presenters from Israel, Middle East, New Zealand, Australia, China, Japan, uh, Italy, Finland. I mean, go on. We've yeah. probably had Delaware. 20, <laughs> many from Delaware, yeah. but we probably had 25 countries represented wow. uh, online in wow. the last two and a half years. And uh, people find out about us. They come in. We have a committee that reviews and approves. And as long as uh, the deal looks okay and, and – uh, investable, you know, uh, and there's a lot of different circumstances, as you know, as an investor surrounding that, uh, we'll approve them and then they will, we start prepping them. We have a prep team that preps every uh, presentation and, uh, and we go from there. Yeah. Well, I know that you've been very active, uh, at the Dingman Center for Entrepreneurship where you and I served and labor for a while and now with Georgetown. Yes. How, in your opinion, how important are the major higher educational institutions in the DMV to this whole sort of universe of startups? I think they're very important. You know, I was at Dingman for eight years. I think I'm at Georgetown for 10 almost. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, AU, GW, they're doing great things. Howard is emerging now to do to do really? doing great things. Yeah, they are. G- George Mason certainly has been yep. doing great things. Virginia Tech's up here now. Uh, Virginia's up here. Um, so you're seeing all the all, a lot of the, even Catholic universities stepping up. So you see a lot of the regional um, universities um, you know, they're fostering entrepreneurship among MBA students, faculty, community, and undergrads. So at some point, a lot of this stuff uh, is motivational to these entrepreneurs, and they go out and start start stuff. And a lot of these groups are hosting demo days. Tomorrow I'm judging a demo day down at George Washington University. Um, but every university has multiple demo days. They also have invest, investor pitch events. Yep. So it brings investors in to meet some of the people in their communities. But I think they're critical. Yeah. They really are, especially among the big research institutions here. So some of the meta themes that investors are, I'm sure you, the teams that you bring in, the investors you have, one of the, you know, look, you and I have lived through some bubbles. And yeah. uh, sometimes I get cynical about some of these themes. Like I saw a metaverse that Citibank put out a re- uh, report 
Metaverse is going to be a $10 trillion opportunity. I know um, Web3 and all this stuff. How do you, Tian Wang, the man, the legend, how do you separate some of the wheat from the chaff and some of the kind of, how do you remain uncynical about some of these things that come out that seem to be the, the next greatest thing? First of all, I'm no longer a legend if I don't mention Marymount University. All right. <laughs> For obvious reasons. Yes. Jonathan's doing a great job great there. Great job, yeah. Yep. And uh, Noted. No, I, I forgot. I don't know how I spaced. I mean, he's so there that I, I forgot. But, you know, no, you're bringing up a great question, which is how do you separate the noise from the signal? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's. I think it's hard. Um, especially here in our little mid-Atlantic sort of ecosystem. On the West Coast, they'll bet on anything. I mean, Correct. they'll bet on an 18-year-old college dropout, and the guy turns out to be a gazillionaire, you know? Yeah. Um, I think we're a little bit more, uh, you know, we're focused on, you know, does this thing make sense? What's the team like? What's their track record? Is there any kind of traction? Not necessarily lots of sales, but is this thing, like, does it have legs? Like, can we see a little light at the end of the tunnel? Whereas, you know, we don't have the blind faith mentality that a lot of these other groups well, a lot, of, a lot of other regions have. Well, you mentioned the 18-year-old that's now a gazillionaire. You also, the 19-year-old college dropout that started Theranos, right? So there's there's well, always right. a win. Right. There's a win and a loss there. I don't know if you watched Dropout, the series on Hulu about No, Elizabeth but I've Holmes. read a few articles about her trial and oh, now his my. trial coming up. Yeah. It's- it, it, look, it, you've been to this movie. Um, a good storyteller can go a long way in yes. raising capital, particularly yeah. from people that are able to be like some of the older white men that she basically yes. got, the George Schultzes and the yes. John Scullys and uh, even Rupert Murdoch gave her right. some money and yes. stuff like that. So so I think audience and message can often uh, fuel companies that don't deserve it. And we've seen yeah. some of that here, but I think it happens a lot more in the West Coast. Yeah, definitely. hundred percent. Much yeah. more out there. Well, that's why you're vetting and your team's vetting for some of the folks, uh, some of the companies that you prioritize and present is really important, I bet. Yeah, so Connectpreneur, we're not sort of two guys in a garage, you know, back of the envelopes. That I'd say ours are mostly A round or pre A. Yeah. Sometimes post seed, sometimes seed. So for our listeners, and we've had B round, the, yeah, C the, round. Public companies have presented. Say the dollar figures that those can sometimes represent for those oh, who don't know the terms. They're looking to raise between five hundred thousand and maybe twenty million ish. Yeah, so so five hundred is seed, twenty million is a like B or a B C round. round or an A two, A three round. Got yeah, it. Exactly. There seems to be a lot of gray between what those rounds used to yeah, represent. Yeah, it's all melding together. Yeah. yeah. Like Converging. I, I heard a term the other day, not pre-A, it was post-seed. Anyway, they're, they're slicing it so... I was like, well, there's seed A, seed B, seed C now. There's seed really? B. Really? Yeah, there are. Oh, my God. It's amazing. Yeah. Where does it end? Well, the other thing that this arena, as you know, has in spades is public-private partnerships with the federal government and in some cases with Maryland and Virginia and even the and even the district, public-private partnerships with, with capacity funding. You and I both know Montgomery County has tried to do the other counties. Public-private partnerships can really work and they can go really badly. I had one experience at the SBA. Mm. What are you seeing in public-private partnerships or what, what do you hope you see coming out of COVID in public-private partnerships? Well, I can speak to Maryland. I'm on the board of the Montgomery County Economic Development and I know you're involved with that as well. Yeah, um, heading up one of our committees. But yeah, I think that's been fairly successful for the most part. We made it through COVID. I think you know yeah. you're, Montgomery County is an interesting case because we have a world class, you know, place to live, world class yeah. institutions, a lot of wealth, a lot of educated people, great labor pool. So maybe that's not the ideal example to cite. But um, certainly, I think that once we start getting third party, non governmental money, like when the Marriotts of the world and the the uh, Lockheed Martins of the world and the other major employers um, 
start funding economic development, I think that would be, I would view that as a success, you know, but you're seeing the one thing I would do like about this region, you know, is you look at what Fairfax County is doing with Victor Hoskins and what Arlington County is doing and Prince George's County and the deputy mayor in DC, the regions are kind of working together, Yeah, which is interesting. All you too know, rare. Very yeah. rare. And it's also never happened before in the last 20, we've lived here what 30 years plus and it's never really happened until the last. Thanks for bringing that up, Tien. Yeah, no, I, 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 it's not that. You still not that look long, amazing. I'm, I'm headed there. Uh, it's Chen well, Wang. Chen Wang is our guest today on what's working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. We're talking about the economy and the growth economy, so to speak, for the DMV. Much more about our conversation after this. taking a break to discuss some ways you might become a little more involved with what's working in Washington. There's several ways. Take a moment to rate us positively or negatively. We'd love to hear from you. Secondly, our audience is an obvious one. Folks that care about Washington, D.C. and the environs. Folks that care about the Federal News Network. Folks that care about our nation. If you'd like to have your message heard by that kind of audience, be sure to contact us for sponsorship opportunities. You can email me directly at walsh at AOL.com. That's W-A-L-S-H at AOL.com. Yes, it's a dated email address, but it still works. CEO of Opus 8, a venture capital slash capital agglomeration slash new product and company discovery entity that is a legend here in the DMV and has discovered many, many companies and investors and brought investors and companies together in a way that has truly made a difference. PPP loans, hundreds of billions of dollars handed out. I'm sure some of the companies that you presented over the years were recipients of that. What was your experience or what was your sense of how important those loans were to a lot of companies in crossing the COVID chasm, so to speak? I think it was critical for a lot of companies, especially the hospitality, restaurant, yeah. retail type companies. I have some relatives that are in that space that saved them. Uh, we've had some portfolio companies that had PPP loans. Some weren't able to get them the first go around. They were able to get them second round. I think every pretty much most of the companies we've been involved in were able to get the loans. It took a long time. I think the bottom line was who was underwriting the loans. If they had a bank that was really flexible, yep. um, you had a better chance. I think the guys that went to the big banks, unless they were a prime customer, they had to wait longer. Yes. Yeah. And did was it your experience that all of them got forgiven? Most all. Now, I am aware of a couple situations where there's a lot of paperwork uh you know, problems, red tape with the SBA because things are backlogged. Yeah. But yeah, I think they are getting, becoming forgiven pretty much. I think there's one or two more companies that we're involved with that is waiting for forgiveness, but everything I've seen or heard, I've, sp I've spoken to a lot of people. It's not a matter of if it's more of a matter of when. I yeah. am seeing the same thing that, yeah. that it may be delayed, but they're not, 
they're not having to put the money aside because they're going to have to pay right. it the back. The EIDL loans are a whole nother matter. So I'm. Uh, oh, I, I don't know that. Oh, yeah, what, the economic in, injury um, development loans, I yep. guess they call EIDL. Yeah. They ran. They actually stopped allocating as of the end of the year. But there are um, a couple companies I'm involved in have applied and are have been waiting some as long as 18 months. Really? So that's a big Yeah, they call it idle. Yeah, the idle, idle loans. loans. Yes. Exactly, I um, exactly right. Yeah. I'm on the board of a company that's still waiting for theirs as well. Yes. And I wonder in your sense is that just paperwork or was it a separate structure maybe all the above? Yeah, the, what I'm hearing is, is different reasons. One might be your tax re- returns. I've heard addresses need to be exactly the same. There's like <laughs> I thing, hate when that happens. things between social security numbers and right. whatever, but I mean even one company I think had uh, there was a comma missing before Ouch. the ink, and I guess that got kicked out. So really? File. They had to show. I don't know exactly what they had to do, but yeah, they're pretty strict about. I think maybe you're seeing the backlash from all the PPP money, yep. all the fraud. The ideal guys are probably saying, "Well, we're going to be extra, extra slow, extra careful, make sure that this program isn't as abused." I. I completely what are agree. your insiders telling? Well, you? I mean, you, look, I, I, I'm long gone from the SBA because uh, I was with a prior administration. Actually, I guess now two administrations ago, um, although Uncle Joe was part of the price. So as, as we <laughs> right. call him, uh, lovingly call him the the economics of PPP was was shocking. Yeah. How many dollars got handed out and how short a period of time, which is an invitation. I mean, I, mm-hmm. whenever a, I would argue whenever a large program hands out lots of money, to lots of people, there's going to be fraud. So why anybody is shocked that there's billions and billions of dollars going to the wrong people is beyond me. But I think you're right that idle, they were like, wait a minute, we're not going to be accused of the same stuff that they were. So let's talk about another tactic that had a, an incredible arc, and that's SPACs. Mm. How many, if any, of the companies that you've been exposed to the Opus 8 audience ended up doing SPACs? Is it like zero or have some of them gone to the SPAC route? Uh, we have, I don't know if anyone who's closed a deal. Several of our presenters have been approached by SPACs. Um, I know that on the acquisition side, we're looking to acquire some BPO assets, and some of them decided to go sell to SPACs. But this is SPAC BPO, three. business processing outsourcing? Correct. Business, yeah. Call centers, contacts. Very good, Mr. Walsh. Well, no, I'm just trying because this is this is the DMV lingo, man. Right, this is right, exactly. Startup no, lingo. You got it. You yeah. got it. Um, but this is SPAC 3.0. You know, yeah. If you look at 20 years ago, you had SPAC 1.0, back with 02, Ledecky. 03, yeah, yeah, with Jonathan and some other things. So, um, But I think... There, if you look at the universe of SPACs that have ever gone public, very few are trading above uh, IPO price. So you think that history history does repeat itself. You know, or it or it rhymes as they once said. Yeah, I don't. So um, you are you're not alone in saying as a investment as a um, as a category, it's never performed in a way that others have. But it struck me that for a while there were there were some pretty good companies that were using SPAC to compress paperwork. Yeah, I know our friend Mark Ein, yes, who's been a guest on this show. Right. He had several that worked out. Yes, but I think correct. the really bad ones kind of draw down, you know, kind of suck down the whole the whole category. Yeah, I think when you have huge amounts of capital out there. Yeah. Um, in this case, you got your hedge funds and your pipe investors, um, and the, there's just this frenzy. There's yeah. going to be uh, less than high quality, yeah. less than investment grade deals getting underwritten for sure. Well, we're having a conversation today in the same building where our friends at New Enterprise Associates (NEA) have their offices. Mm-hmm. And they were always, to me, an outlier of a huge, huge fund, a huge venture yeah. fund with t- with so much m- capital and under management. What are you seeing in the venture fund world? Are they are they is it sort of uh, barbelling out? So there are lots of or of several very big funds that have massive capacity 
and then smaller nimble funds and that mid-sized fund is kind of disappearing? Yeah, or am, exactly. I, am I wrong? No, you're right. I think you're seeing the, the rich get richer. The mega funds are getting bigger. And, um, you know, when you're a pension fund allocating, you're not going to ever get fired allocating to NEA, ever. Right. But you might get fired allocating to some smaller fund that's only done one or two funds and, you know, their returns are questionable. Yeah. And then we're seeing the birth of what I call micro funds. So three to 20 million. There's tons of them out there. Yep. A lot of them are themed like Latina, Latino, yeah. maybe black focused founders. Yep. Um, gender. You know, yeah. Gender. Women. Exactly. A lot of those, you know, maybe dozens of them. Uh, on the West Coast as well as on the East Coast. And, uh, you know, the jury's out on them because they got to find great assets that uh, they can get a good return on because at the end of the day, you want to make your LPs happy. That's the, your your end customer if you're a fund manager. So See, people forget that. You know. And I think that's a really important point, that people think of venture cap. in my experience, maybe you're seeing people think of venture capital as, as, as a certain entity, and they sort of forget that they promise their LPs yeah. An expectation of return over a certain period of time. Yes. And whatever it takes to do that is what they'll probably do. So the emotion surrounding a startup and the, you know, oh, well, Karen, we, we love you. Aren't you? you know, <laughs> the emotion kind of gets a right. little thin when they're yes. not going to hit the number. That's so true. That's so true. Yeah. I and, mean, at the end of the day, they have customers. Because remember, the goal of a small fund manager is to raise a second fund. Bingo. And, and the goal will then of the second fund will be to make enough money to raise the third fund. Right. And these funds can get big fast. You know, yep. the first fund might be 20. The second might be 60 or 80. Yeah. Third one could be 145. And look at Camber Creek, Casey Berman. Yeah. Tremendous. Those guys are making money hand over fist. They, they just raised $150 million fund. That's Holy their third moly. fund. So, how, so what was the size of their first fund? It was like a small, 20 million? I think it was like 20, 25 million. Yeah. So this, and this it was friends and family. You really? Know, was, yeah. And then they did so well that they got to raise a second fund. That thing kicked ass, so then they just raised a third fund. Is kicked ass a technical term in the venture capital? <laughs> I, I, I no. But the idea that this, this your point, the step up of size of fund can be dramatic yeah. if they show some return in those first couple of funds. Oh, yeah. If they do well on this fund, the next one will be 500 I bet. Holy moly. Yeah. But they, they will do well. They've got great partners. They know what they're doing. They know this industry. They, know, they only do prop tech, property tech. They know the real estate industry for Several generations. I mean, they, they're sharp people. Well, that's your point yeah. about focus. Mm -hmm. So industry focus or demographic focus for the first fund. So they were like 20 million prop tech only. Right. It's an easy sell, I think, when, you, when you're saying that's what your fund. Here, I have a fund. Here's what I do. And then the investor right. can say, I get it. I right. think you know prop tech. Right. The generalists are not as – there's riches and niches, right? So the, the generalists, you know, their story is harder to tell. Well, I think, in my opinion, the generalists end up looking a lot like Tiger, you know, that's now in the venture business because they have, whatever, $40 billion. Yes. So you can be generalist when you can take a swing with $150 billion right. in a company whose pre-money is, you know, $1.7 right. or whatever the number but is. But it's already heavily de-risked because exactly. of all the other investors that are there and exactly. the company's already got revenues and it's got true value. So they're coming in pre-IPO. And basically. that's not venture capital to me. No, that's no, private that's, equity. Yeah, private equity, basically. Exactly. Well, our friend Peter Barris, uh, who the NEA manager for so long, once said to me, at, we were at a, um, actually, we were at a birthday party for our friend Art Marks. Okay. Gone but not Rest forgotten. In peace. And I yep. said, I said, aren't you afraid you're going to miss, you know, the next Snapchat, you know, getting in at $3 million <laughs> for the with a $10 million pre? And he said, hell no. He said, I, I wait till the last round before the IPO. It's all de-risked. I make three to four X, my and my LPs are happy. And right. I said, Well, you're really you're really private equity, not venture. He said, Shh, don't tell anybody. Because right. but that's yeah. how the size they can't do yeah. a small deal. He's making three to four X in two years max. Bingo. Three years. Whereas the other guys, 
in early, they're making maybe 20x, but it might take them seven or eight years. Exactly. With a lot more risk. Exactly. And so, actually, I think the math works out. If you get three to four, if you get two to three x in two years, and you cycle that capital up and down, you probably end up being better mm-hmm. than waiting the eight years for the for the twenty yeah. bagger. Yeah, with I a think. lot less risk. A lot, and a lot less headaches. We've and solved few, it. Fewer board meetings. Chen Wong I mean, and I have solved <laughs> right. Fewer, we've solved the venture capital business. There we go. Well, Chen, so let's do. Uh, I, I, I guess before we get to our final uh, crystal ball question, or if you could change the world question, um, crystal ball in this region coming out of COVID. You're enthusiastic, or are you still challenge where COVID may or may not go with us. I'm totally enthusiastic. I think we're seeing so many startups and advances in healthcare, biotech, yep. therapeutics. Um, diagnostics, med devices. And I think COVID was sort of like, uh, you know, the analog to the, uh, what do you call it? The uh, military industrial complex of World War II in Vietnam, you know, produces all this great technology. Well, COVID also produced a lot of technology, not just here, but worldwide. And DC has benefited tremendously. Maryland's really benefited as well. So I think um, overall, and that's just one sector, cyber, that cybersecurity issue, that, that's not going anywhere anytime right. soon. That's yeah. going to be the gift that keeps on giving forever, I think. And um, as long as there's bad people, you're going to have a need for you know great, great I, cybersecurity. I also think COVID got uh, firms and even venture guys to understand they can work um, yes, in a hybrid environment and be right. productive. Yep. All right. So it comes to that time in, in our show where we ask every guest the magic wand question. If you were king of the world for whatever period of time you choose, what would you wave a magic wand and make start start to, to make happen or wave a magic wand and cease to happen? Any thoughts? Yes. Uh, cease happening, get rid of all nuclear weapons because that's the only thing that can really ruin us for the future. Well said. Uh, to start, I would make everybody meditate for 15 minutes a day. Wow. Yeah, or I'd pay them to meditate for 15 minutes a day. Wow. I, I assume that's something you do. <laughs> I do. Yeah. A lifesaver, yeah. Been doing it every day, fifteen plus years. Well, it shows uh, in your in your very balanced <laughs> approach to life. I think no, we'd have less war, less stress. You I, know, I concur. The nukes thing is a very interesting response. We've never had one that focused that I, oh, I yeah. completely That's agree with. That's the one thing that can ruin everything. For ruin us. everything. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. Well, Chen Wang, or I biological say, weapons too. I mean, you know, there's a lot say, of there's different things that can come out. I was going to say, yeah, that that's sort yeah. of a quiet nuke. Uh, Tian Wang, I started the show by calling you the man, the legend. Uh, I, I know that's that's a goofy title, but I got to say, I'm just going to say this publicly. You, what your contributions have been and continue to be to the DMV's entrepreneurial uh, uh, environment are absolutely gold standard. So congratulations. Don't stop. Well, thanks, brother. I really appreciate that. I'm just trying to be like you. Uh, you know, I, I'll never have a voice for radio. I'll never have a face for TV, but at least I can strive to be like you. OK. Oh, shucks, as the host said. <laughs> It's What's Working in Washington. Our guest today has been Chen Wang of Opus 8. Chen, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Real pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening, and I hope that our show continues to give you some enlightenment, some information, some actionable intelligence, and hopefully some enthusiasm about what works in Washington, D.C. So once again, thanks for listening. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by The Sunbathers.
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.